0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Scripture reading today comes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like like him in his death, and so... "'somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. "'Not that I've already obtained all of this "'or have already arrived at my goal, "'but I press on to take hold "'of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. "'Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself "'yet to take hold of it, but one thing I do, "'forgetting what is behind "'and straining toward what is ahead, "'I press on toward the goal to win the prize "'for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus.'" This is the word of the Lord. You, this is our third week in this series called Discovering Joy. We're walking through the book of Philippians. And so we're so excited about this series. We love uh, studying and, and, and living in God's word. Uh, so for this morning, I, I'm just curious, though, if you guys have a, a, a situation happen in your life that's common to me, where I'll, I'll drive downtown in the middle of a work day. So it's probably, you know, like, 10 in the morning or two in the afternoon, and I'm driving, and I go on Cesar Chavez, I'm right next to Town Lake, and it's just covered with people. People working out, exercising, brunching, and I ask myself the question that you might ask as well, which is, what do these people do for a job? Like, is anyone working in this city? I don't get it. But they're out there exercising, they're running. Uh, it's funny, for me, if I were having a day off, The last thing you would find me doing is just running. If you find me running, it's probably because I'm being chased by something dangerous. I'd watch out. I've only ran one race in my life, just one race in my life, and it was literally because something was chasing me. I wanna tell you about uh, an experience I had. After college, I moved to Germany. I was working with American military families there in Germany, and I realized I had this window where I could check off something off my bucket list. It was just so it happened be I was there at that time where I, I could do this thing I've always wanted to do. So I took a train from Germany down to Paris, realized that my ticket was for the wrong day, so I hopped a train from Paris, and I spent 10 hours sleeping underneath a first-class bed on a train, hoping that no one would come in. Eventually, I was kicked off that train, believe it or not, and I had to walk down these train tracks for hours in Spain, hopefully I found my way getting to this place called Pamplona in the middle of June, July, all with this one singular goal. I wanted to run with the bulls. I wanted to run with the bulls. Here's me and my long hair glory right there. I, uh, I, I don't know why, but I've always wanted to do this. I know there's other people out there like me. Can you raise your hand if you've ran with the bulls as well, anyone here? Yeah, a couple of idiots are over here as well, wonderful. <laughs> you know, it's funny, they act, uh, in psychology, they say that there's a part of the brain that doesn't fully develop until you're around 24 or 25, and it's the part of the brain that understands consequences. And so I was 22 right there, a solid 22. Uh, and uh, some things you might not know about this festival, it actually takes place for two weeks in July, and what, what happens is that in the evening, there's a, a bullfight, And then after that, it kicks on this party and it goes throughout the whole night. So the whole night in Pamplona, there's just parties and festivals and things like that. And then in the morning, when people can't quite walk straight, they are chased by 2,000 pound bulls on this race. It makes complete sense, right? Uh, I remember this well, it was 8 a.m. and I was exhausted from the train ride, exhausted from the night uh, in Pamplona. And I remember just feeling just so just ready for sleep. At eight in the morning, when you hear a gunshot and you feel the rumble of bulls running behind you, I just felt awake. I remember that. I was like, (laughs) I'm feeling awake all of a sudden. My plan with my buddies, I went with some friends, and we were playing, hey, let's all run together. And so the the gunshot sounds, which means they've released the bulls on these cobblestone roads there in, in Pamplona, and the idea of running together quickly disappeared. Like, it was every man for himself. I remember my, my one friend, Jason, there in the, the red shirt, a bull slipped and got turned around, and he ran the, he was running the wrong direction right at Jason. I remember he had to climb up on a sign, and I just remember running past him, I was like, well, good luck, buddy. Like, I was, <laughs> you can make it. Um, and so we're running down here, and obviously the goal is to not die, but there's another goal. If you can make it into the, the race weaves through this uh, this town and goes into the Coliseum. And if you can make it into the Coliseum before the last bull, uh, they shut the doors and no one else can go in. You can go in the stands and watch, but you can't just run in. So the goal is to, to make it into the Coliseum and this whole race lasts for three minutes. So like a full day of like hopping trains and and, and run, like, walking down these train tracks and trying to find my way just for three minutes of glory. Uh, I, I remember it very well, though. The most striking memory I had was me and this uh, Spaniard were running, and I think we are just both just laughing out of the stu- stupidity of the moment, and we're laughing, and we're running, and all of a sudden, we both see this bull behind us, and it was, like, the choice of, do you keep turning around so you slow down, or you just keep you know face forward I remember running and here and I were both looking and all of a sudden I just see him trip up and all of a sudden the bull's right next to me and I remember just screaming ah! and the bull just passed me right by and it was just guys it was awesome it was awesome so we made it into the stadium. I made it into the stadium. We ran around, and, and the, the fun doesn't stop there because they try to get the bulls into the in the pens, but then they release steers just to just to run around and demolish people. And you, when I got there, I all these people were there. I thought they were there to cheer me on. You made it uh, quickly. You realize that they're not cheering for you. Any time like a steer throws at some person, yay! Look at them. Uh, I was like, they were not rooting me on. I couldn't trust them. I remember thinking that. Now, I'm thinking about this experience this week as I was reading through Philippians 3, in part because it's Paul, this church planner who planted this church in this Greek town called Philippi. Uh, Paul was writing for them and trying to paint a picture that there's a goal that's worth living for. There's like a grand passion that's, that it's something that's worth living for. It's greater than a pilgrimage to Pamplona. And he used this imagery of a runner running for a prize. And it made me think about this, uh, or this third chapter in Philippians, this third week in our series. To understand this chapter, you have to understand some things that were happening when Paul wrote it. Paul was, uh, was writing after the time of Jesus, after they planted this church. And what happened is Paul was going around and planting these different churches. Uh, people were coming behind him and they were distorting the message that he was trying to share. He would, Paul would come in, tell the message of, and the good news about Jesus, the power of God's grace in Jesus. And then they came behind him and they started distorting the message. In particular, what they said was to follow Jesus doesn't mean you're only uh, to know and follow him, but you also have to be culturally and religiously Jewish to be faithful. Now, Philippi was in Greece, and the cultural differences were so stark. It's like me saying to you, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to uh, integrate yourself into the culture of a place like Pakistan, or you have to adapt yourself to the culture of Korea, or you'd have to move to Dallas Just the cultural differences are so vast, you know, Uh, and for them, it would change how they ate, what what they could eat. It it would change all of their relational uh, norms that they experienced. And also for the men, they would have to get circumcised uh, to be a convert into Christianity. And for whatever reason, they found this to be a bit of a burden. And uh, so Paul was really, really upset by this. Paul, in this chapter, he calls these, these people who are agitating things, he calls them evildoers, dogs, and mutilators of the flesh. And Paul saw, saw what, that this was tripping up this new community, people who were experiencing the power of the good news of Jesus, and these people were undercutting it. They were creating barriers for it. And for them, what, what they were doing, they're, they're doing, they did something that we're st- still tempted to do today, and it's this. It's to add something onto the message of Jesus. So it's Jesus plus fill the blank. It's Jesus plus act like we act. It's Jesus plus eat like we eat. It's Jesus plus look like we look like. And there's a temptation even today to add on to the message of Jesus something that conforms people to something else other than Jesus. And that, my friends, anytime it's Jesus plus, it's a distortion of the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. It's just Jesus. I remember back in the day, I I led a youth ministry in San Diego, and I remember this one kid who, uh, he was completely goth out, like black eyeliner, black nails, death metal, like heavy metal, death metal, and throughout the summer, he had this experience of grace that happened. It was incredible to see it—that God just really grabbed him, and like revealed, like that He knew him and loved him. And this kid just went through this transformation. And then the next Wednesday happened, and uh, this kid showed up, hair parted, wearing a polo, like totally different. I remember asking him, like, uh, "What are you wearing?" What, what's going on? And he said, well, I, I, um, I thought if I'm, if I'm going to be a Christian, I probably should look like one. And I just looked at him and realized that, like, this young man was in this really, really delicate point where he was trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. And he thought it was Jesus plus looking like all the other Aber and Cromby and Fitch kids in this youth group. And I just saw an opportunity that I had to be able to look him in the eyes and say, do you like wearing what you're wearing? He said, of course not. And I said, how about you be the most Jesus-loving goth kid in San Diego? And all of a sudden, his eyes brighten up because he realized that he could follow Jesus while being him. And the temptation for us is always to think that our spiritual transformation it's to something else other than Jesus. It's always to Jesus. Our spiritual trans- transformation's not to other Christians, it's not to a denomination, it's not to a style of Christianity, it's to Jesus. And Paul warns us, whenever it's Jesus plus, it's dangerous ground. So in response, this is what Paul said to those people who are trying to get these new Christians to, to act and look like them if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, or confidence in themselves, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. What Paul is doing here is a humble brag, as some might say. What Paul is saying is, if we want to keep count on who's the most religious or who's been the most religious, Paul is saying, I would win it. And we could also insert our own list here right, of what makes us feel like we are also justified, we're proven good and right. I was a leader in the church. I've been a Christian for decades. I've gone on mission trips. I've mentored kids. I've given my money to the church. I'm in a small group. I have scripture memorized. I go to church twice a month, which is a lot more than a lot of people in this room. But then Paul tears it all down. He says this in verse 7, But wherever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. The ways I used to justify myself, the ways I used to build myself up, I gladly give them all away. I happily tear it down for the sake of Jesus. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, notice this, the surpassing worth of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. The surpassing, expansive, abundant, limitless worth of knowing Jesus. My Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. In this passage right here, Paul is doing it. He's juxtaposing two different concepts. One is the, the righteousness that he was talking about the righteousness of himself, the things that were gains that he had. And he actually uses this word garbage. This word garbage is really, really, really crude. I would say the translation for our culture, but kids are in the room. Paul, this word literally talks about excrement or food scraps. It's the two different ways that you could think of how this was being used. So that's, that's my righteousness on one hand, it's that. It belongs in a porta potty. Meanwhile, there's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So, between these two, Paul is saying one is absolutely worthless. It's disgusting to me. And the other one is the sole existence, the purpose of my life. It's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Goes on to say this, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Think of this, to be found in Jesus, to be covered in Jesus's approval, to be found in Jesus, to gain Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The problem with believing that you're found just and holy and good through the law, or another way we would say it, is through our own goodness, our own good deeds, is that what becomes the focal point of your religion? Me. Now, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm the focal point of my religion, my goodness, my goodness. My holiness, how I'm doing, how holy and good I am. And where I begin to fail, I just get to compare myself to people who are worse than me. I use other people to make myself feel better. Well, at least I'm not like them. And slowly and slowly, our religion becomes what this theologian, Dallas Willard, called the religion of sin management. How I can manage my sin. What's my personal report card say, today, and where I continue to mess up, how, I, how can I manage it not through my goodness, but how can I manage it through hiding it better? you are trying to avoid it. But instead, Paul calls us to trade out that broken and destructive way of obtaining goodness, not from the law, but through Jesus. That Jesus's goodness is enough for me. Maybe that's what he thought when he said the words, I have gained Jesus. I have gained Jesus' goodness. I've gained it. It's almost like Paul saying, for all of you who want your religious standing to be something like that, I want something more. I want something more for me. And what is it that he wants? In verse 10, I want to know Christ. This knowing of Christ is not some general knowledge it's an intimate knowledge. The language is that of intimacy. It's, not, it's the difference between knowing about and knowing something. Friends, I could, have, I could have studied Pamplona. I could have pulled out my Rick Steves Guide to Spain. I could read up on it. I could have watched videos. I'm not sure if they had YouTube back then, but I could have found videos somehow and watched people running with the bulls. But it would not have been enough. I wanted to know it. I wanted to know what it was like to walk through the streets, to have the adrenaline pumping through my veins, to parade in the town at four in the morning. I wanted to know it all firsthand. I didn't want to know about it. And I'm afraid too many of us are content about knowing about Jesus. We can rattle off some things that we've heard or read about Jesus like he's some distant relative. But Paul had one passion, he had one singular passion, He wanted to firsthand know Jesus. I've heard an author, Bob Goff, who's just the most playful author out there. He talked about the difference between knowing about and knowing like this. He said, what do you call someone who knows a lot about someone without actually knowing them? A stalker. (laughs) And he said, I realized after a while that I think I've been stalking Jesus all of my life. And it's probably creeping him out. It's not nearly about just knowing about Jesus. The difference is huge between the two. One is a lifeless religion, the other one's a transforming relationship. And when we start knowing Jesus, Knowing Jesus through our own life, through our own experiences, knowing Jesus in our prayers, knowing Jesus in how we see this world, knowing Jesus in how we serve people who are in need, people who are hopeless. When we start seeing and experiencing Jesus that way, something powerful happens. Uh, Theologian N.T. Wright said this, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Or another way I would put it, is to have a life of gratitude. It's the natural response to to knowing Jesus. Not to have the reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't really, yet really understood who he is or what he's done. Worship and gratitude is a natural outflowing of knowing Jesus. So this provokes within me a question. When was the last time that the simple truths of the gospel moved me, provoked me to worship, provoked me to gratitude? When was the last time, just like the simple, like elementary truths that we're teaching the kids back there, when was the last time that that moved me? The fact that God knows you by name, that there hasn't been a minute of your life that God was not there, that God hears every single prayer that you pray that deep down, like deep down in your soul where no one else gets to, no one else can touch, that God is there in a million times a day he whispers to you and me, you belong to me, you belong to me, you belong to me. When was the last time that provoked us to a life of worship? If it's been a while, it might, might stir up a question. Have I moved to a place where I'm knowing about Jesus more than knowing him? I want to be moved by that. I want to be moved by that. Verse 10, it goes on to say, say this. Yes, to know Christ, to know him and the power of his resurrection. When you feel like your life is new, your life is great, but also knowing Christ in participation, particip- participation in his sufferings. You can know Jesus in your own sufferings, even becoming like him in his death and so how, somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead then Paul goes into this race analogy in detail here. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Even though it seems like Paul has given up on everything to know and to follow Jesus, notice here. He hasn't yet arrived. He doesn't believe it's He's arrived there. He wasn't content where he was. He was still pressing on. He was running hard towards Jesus. Paul's view of his own transformation, his life with Jesus was long. And he was still in process. I'm afraid many of us, we have a view of our relationship with Jesus that's singular and it's like like one moment. It's instantaneous. Like the point of Jesus' life was to get us into heaven. So, the, the extent of our relationship is that we raise a hand, we walk the aisle, we check off the box in the connect card, and we feel, or we get baptized, and we feel like, oh, it's complete now. Friends, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. We get then to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That this is a long experience Paul wants this church in Philippi and perhaps Paul wants the vine to press on, to take hold, to run hard, to give your whole heart to it. And I love that phrase, to take hold of, for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I, like you, many times feel like my grip on Jesus wavers. There's times where I'm knowing Jesus, not knowing about him, I'm knowing Jesus, I, I'm, I'm holding fast to him. And there's times where I feel like I, I'm just, I, lose, I get distracted I lose my grip. And that's where the second part of that, the reminder that Christ Jesus has already taken a hold on me. The the picture I have is of a parent walking through a parking lot and a parent says, hey, would you mind holding my hand? It almost sounds like the parent needs the child's grip. But when that car zips around the, the corner and the parent has the child and pulls them back, you see who's holding who. Friends, God has you in his grip. And there's no way this world can pry you free from it. This should be freeing. If we've already received this grip of love, if we don't have to earn it, we don't have to prove it, we don't have to secure it, it should free us to run with joy, to run hard. And how do we do this? In verse 13, Paul says, "'One thing I do, forgetting what is behind "'and straining towards what is ahead,' I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which, Christ, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. First thing you do to run hard is you need to forget. There's two different barriers that it seems like forgetting what's behind. There's two different barriers from our past. First is our own sin. Sometimes it's hard to, to let go of that. It's hard to let go of our past, the regrets we have, the shame we have, the the rubble in our past. But there's other people, it's hard also to let go of your goodness. If you've spent a life trying to prove that you have earned a relationship with God, it's also hard to let go of that, to let go of your holiness, your goodness, your status. But both of these are barriers that have something in common. They're both in our past, and they both have the focus on me in my life, not on Christ. Paul could have had both, He was one of the most religious people in all of Israel, but he also spent his days uh, persecuting the church. He killed and tortured Christians. He could have been tempted at holding on to both those things, but he didn't have time for it. Something ahead of him was more glorious, more beautiful for him. I'm not saying he didn't have to make amends. He made amends, but then he ran hard. He didn't have time to look in the rearview mirror. He pressed on towards the goal to win the prize for which God called him. Heavenward. Paul speaks to this Greek community using a picture that they would understand. He's talking about running hard to win the prize. In Greek culture, an athlete would run the race, and if they would win, whoever was in charge, whoever was the ruler, would call them up before the community, and they would award this athlete for their faithful job in running and completing the race. Like many people making the stadium and having the, the crowds cheer on the bulls. It'd be the other way around. And what was the prize for this church in Philippi? What was the thing that Paul wanted them to see is, what is the prize for you? The prize is knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus now and having the eternal hope of heaven. Because Jesus is not only the giver of the gift, he is the gift. He's not only the, the shepherd showing you the way, he's the destination. He's not only the savior, but he himself is salvation. And this is what is found when we know Jesus. We know that all now and we know it all for all of eternity. And that we should be able to look forward to the day when our faith then will be sight. When we pass on from this side of life to the other. When we run into this great, this great colosseum of God's love, And the one who's held on to you for all of your life celebrates, rejoices over you, and shows you what true joy really is. Friends, are you ready to run?